All right. Good evening. It's nice to see some faces that I only know the names of. So welcome, Paulina. Good to see you. It's good to see all of you whose names I've seen often, but never actually seen. So it's a joy to meet you. Welcome. All right. So we've got a lot to cover tonight. We're going to be discussing the art of prayer, the art and science of prayer, really. Um, so welcome. Thank you all for joining us. And Merry Christmas. Merry belated Christmas, one and all. Well, not if you're Orthodox. If you're Orthodox Christian, then you'll be celebrating in January. So Merry Advanced Christmas. Now, um, the reason we're having this discussion is because in the course of your journey here in spiritual life, inadvertently, you've stumbled into the importance of prayer. In all different traditions, prayer is stressed. It's at the very heart of Sri Ramakrishna's sadhana. It was the way that Sri Ramakrishna attained the vision of Makali. It was the way in which he attained spiritual perfection. And in some sense, it is through prayer that he um, attained the adhikari or rather the qualifications necessary to study all the various other sadhanas that he committed himself to um, through the course of his 12-year-long period of austerity. So he did Advaita Vedanta and achieved Nirvikalpa Samadhi with Totapuri. He practiced Vaishnava sadhanas and had the vision of Sita and of Radha and of Hanuman and of Rama and of Krishna, baby, baby Rama also. He had all of those visions within the Vaishnava stream. And then he practiced, of course, all the 64 tantras under the tutelage of Bhairavi Brahmani. So you can see from Sri Ramakrishna's sadhana, he He's doing a lot of things. He's doing Tantra, he's doing Vedanta, he's doing yoga. He even practiced Hatha yoga at a point. It's a lesser known thing about his sadhana, but he even practiced some Hatha yoga here and there. So he, he seemed to have done a lot, but all of that came after he had the vision of Makali, which is very interesting because most of us, we do sadhana, meaning we do spiritual practice so that we can, we can see God, we can experience God, we can realize the self. But he didn't do any of those sadhanas to realize God. He did all of those sadhanas as a consequence of realizing God. I think that's quite stunning. His spiritual life began when most of us would consider it ended. So he had this vision of Makali, and then he was filled with such fervor to continue in his spiritual path because arguably at that point, it became realer than real to him. For Sri Ramakrishna, having had the vision of Makali, there was no possibility anymore of living any other sort of life than a holy spiritual one um, as a result of having that strong dose of coming face to face with divinity. So that's, that's that. But notice, and this is very important, he achieved that vision not through elaborate yogic exercises, you know, not through um, this or that posture or um, this or that Vedantic teaching. No, he achieved it merely through longing, through prayer. Kabir, one of the kind of like Kabir and Mira and all of these kind of ecstatic poets in the, uh, you know, all throughout the 14th, all the way, we could say post-Muslim invasion India between the uh, 12th century all the way up to the 18th century, you saw all these remarkable kind of bhakti poets like Kabir, like Mira, like Ram Prasad, you know, like uh, Prem Das, Kamalakanta, like all of these great bhakti poets, all of them were singing poems to different deities. Like in Kabir's case, he was a Muslim who was initiated into the worship of Rama. So he was kind of the world's first public Hindu Muslim, I guess, because in India, there are many of those, like people who are both Sufis and worshippers of Rama like that. So Kabir, he wrote poems to the formless absolute, so he was kind of like a jnani in some sense, but his poems um, would always stress the importance of longing, of craving to have the vision of God. So he would say, um, in your quest for the absolute, he calls it sometimes the friend or the beloved, you know, like Rumi and Shams, like all of those uh, Sufi poets. He has that same kind of vibe. He probably read those 13th century Sufis. Anyway, he would say, in your quest for the beloved, in your quest for the absolute or for the friend, or I forget which phrase he used in that poem, but he said, in your quest for that, it is your longing that does all the work. Look at, look at me, Kabir says. 
and you will see a slave to that longing. He's talking about um, viraha, maybe the divine dispassion that comes when one A feels that God is a tangible reality and B feels one separateness from it and C feels the overwhelming desire to close that gap. So that longing is at the heart of Kabir's poems. You will see it, of course, in Mira, who over and over is weeping to have a vision of her Krishna. Maybe you'll talk to Kat a little later and then you also get that vibe of Mira, a true lover of Krishna. Then you can meet Ramprasad, who is one of the most divinely inebriated worshippers of Kali to have ever graced the Indian subcontinent. He would often sing you know, to Kali full of longing, like the longing of a child for his mother. And Sri Ramakrishna himself, at the end of a day's sadhana, if he hadn't had the vision of Makali that day, he would like rub his face on the floor crying. And many people thought that this was the case of a boy who actually lost his mother because he would cry and cry and cry because that was the feeling that he felt. I, mother, another day has passed and yet I have not had thy vision. I cannot bear it. You know, so you, you hear that in Kabir, in Mira, in Ramprasad, all of these people seem to be saturated with this heart-rending divine longing. Why? I'm going to argue, first and foremost, that the only reason they feel this longing is because they've tasted God. And by that, I mean, they don't believe because their parents told them to believe. They don't believe because they were born to a church community mm -hmm. or as a matter of like cultural um, you know, forces. They don't believe because they were told to believe by a book or by an authority. They, they don't even believe. I would argue they've gone beyond belief and they've gone to experience. They've somehow or other sensed the actual tangible experience of some reality, call it God, call it the self, call it the divine, whatever you want to call it. They've sensed that reality. And now they will not stop until they're plunged headfirst and immersed into that reality forevermore. That's called viraha. It's a very untranslatable Sanskrit word. It means something like divine dispassion. It's like discontent. It's like this feeling of like, I just cannot bear to be in this mundane life anymore without fully immersing myself in the truth. I need to taste this bliss continually. Else, what's the meaning of my life? If not to realize God, what is the meaning of my life? And interestingly, that divine discontent, that restlessness, that desire for God that seems to almost seem like grief, is, as Tulsida says, another great bhakti poet, sweeter than all the joys of the world. That's the irony of all of this. The longing for God, that feeling of dis divine discontent, the desire to approach God, feeling as if God is far away for some reason, that feeling is actually better than all the joys of the world. The greatest orgasm, the best piece of chocolate cake, the highest accolade in the corporate world or the artistic world. Like, like, like not to demean it, it's good. But as great as it is, it doesn't come close doesn't come close to the joy of wanting to want God or wanting God, you see. So this, this longing, yeah, this, this prayerful desire to approach God can only be present in someone once they've sensed the living presence of God in their heart, okay? So Kabir had it, Ram Prasad had it, Mirabai had it, and of course, Sri Ramakrishna embodied it in its fullest. So therefore, studying the life of Sri Ramakrishna, you find that at the heart of his instruction is prayer. You know, at the centerpiece of Sri Ramakrishna sadhana, both in his own case and in the case of his instruction to disciples, prayer takes front and center stage. You know, prayer is so important. But what the heck is prayer? Many people here in America, I've noticed, grew up Christian. And so you, it, it's no surprise to you to find that prayer is so stressed in Sri Ramakrishna because it was also likewise stressed in Jesus and uh, his sadhana. So Jesus Christ, his very life is an embodiment of prayer. He was a deeply, divinely inebriated person, which meant that he was drunk on the power of prayer. You know, he would kind of wander off into the desert and spend 40 days and, you know, just who knew what he was doing. But 
we do know what he was doing because often when he was hanging out with people, he would also go up to the mountain and pray. So often he just went off on his own, probably knelt with his hands folded and he prayed. The Christ was all about prayer. It was like Sri Ramakrishna, the centerpiece of his own sadhana and also his instruction. He would invite people to pray. He would pray with them. So much of Christian life is prayer. So growing up Christian, those of you here in America and anywhere in the world who've grown up Christian, you've no doubt also heard about prayer and you've no doubt heard how much it is stressed in spiritual life. Yet how few people can actually tell you what it is. Some people say, oh, prayer is talking to God, but something feels fake about that. Does it, for most of us, it doesn't quite sit right. We talk to God and we feel like a phony or we feel kind of stupid, you know, and worse, some people talk to God and they're very disheartened when they don't get a response. And then they lose their faith and they become a rank atheist and enjoy hedonism for the next eight years and bully their college dorm room mates with their Nietzsche nihilism and their, you know, <laughs> pop science, Buzzfeed, quantum mechanics. And they go out on dates with you having, you know, met you on Tinder. And then all they do is mansplain quantum mechanics to you and tell you that time doesn't exist. You know, like that, like that. <laughs> and then they <laughs> hopefully eventually come back to spiritual life through like an actual experience of God. So anyway, here's the thing. <laughs> right? Those coming to spiritual life, whether because they were brought up in a spiritual community, a religious community, more likely, um, or <laughs> Chandraji, nihilism means nothing to me. <laughs> Except that you, what means something to me is that you give me the time to like talk at you about nihilism. <laughs> that's, the, that's the vibe you get sometimes. Anyway, so everyone's heard about prayer, whether you've grown up Christian or Muslim or Jewish, whether you've grown up in Hindu spaces or in any kind of Sufi tradition, like whatever. Prayer is so important, but very few people can actually tell you what it is. Is prayer just talking to God? There must be more to it than that. Okay. In today's lecture, um, I want to take up this question of prayer with God's grace. It might be possible to do so to say a few things about prayer. I want to first define prayer. What exactly is prayer? Then I want to talk about several different ways to pray. I think maybe a list of six or seven or eight, mother willing, of different types of prayer, you know, starting with japa and moving on to the acceptance of the will of God and then tantric ritual worship and all that. Talk about all the different modes of prayer. I also want to ask the question, is prayer distinct from meditation? So if you were to take like, for instance, Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, which is a manual on Raja Yoga on how to meditate, is that different from Avagrius of Pontius's chapters on prayer? So believe it or not, there are actually these manuals these very scientific manuals within the Christian tradition, mostly within the Orthodox Christian tradition that teach you how to pray. Just like with as much detail and precision as Patanjali teaches you Raja Yoga, Avagrius of Pontius will teach you prayer in his work, Practicos and Chapters of Prayer. You know, there's John the Climacos's Ladder of Ascent. Once someone jokes that all these Orthodox masters, they sound like gladiators. Maximus the Confessor, Avagrius of Pontius, John the Climacos means something like climax john no dirty jokes okay okay he's it, he, he's climaxing in god so I, I don't want to hear it from you he's ascending the divine ladder okay <laughs> get your head out of the gutter i know what you were all thinking climax john get his name out of your mouth anyway so all of these people they're like these desert fathers and desert mothers and and anjali may be able to tell you a bit more about them being herself of that lineage but these are like levantine christians at the very foundations of christianity the very beginning of christianity before like constantine turned it into a state religion so before christianity was institutionalized and turned into this huge thing heck way before any of the ecumenical councils you know, where people would decide what Christianity was and wasn't way before the Nicene Creed, where a group of scholars would sit down and take things out of the Bible and put things into the Bible and kind of canonize everything way before any of that. Um, Christianity was like this ragtag, ragtag gorilla movement of devout 
Jews in the desert praying. You know, so it maybe had its roots in the ethnic traditions, which are very Buddhistic. You know, for various reasons, some people argue it's actual Buddhist influence because there are like Buddhist temples in Coptic Egypt, etc. But my feeling is it's both. It's both actual Buddhist influence and also because spirituality is universal. You know, so they came upon the same truths and they practice baptisms, which are a lot like bathing in the Ganga. You know, which Hindus do often before they meditate. They practiced fasting and meditation and a type of prayer, which was a little more like meditation than just talking to God. Okay, so these Essenes eventually turned into the early Christians, who were all wandering in the desert, living in caves, much like the yogis of the Himalayas and all over India. So they were ascetics. This is called hesychasm, which means the ascetic version of Christianity. Now, the reason this is Orthodox Christianity is because they believe themselves closer to the teachings of Jesus. Because you know, as you'll notice, Jesus himself was a desert wandering. Jesus was a monk. That's why, you know, when Swami Vivekananda came to America to teach, you know, they asked him, why are you here? Are you here to make Hindus Hindus? Are you here to make Christians Hindus? You know, are you preaching Hinduism? And he say, oh my God, God forbid. God forbid the Hindu become a Christian or the Christian become a Hindu or the Muslim become a Buddhist. He said, God forbid. I'm here to teach Christians to be better Christians. Why did he say that? Because he was speaking on behalf of Vedanta. He was speaking on behalf of the Upanishads. He was not speaking about the cultural response to truth, which we call Hinduism, Islam, Christianity. He was speaking about truth itself. And that truth is as present in every religion as it is in Hinduism. So he was able to talk about the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and the Bhakti Sutra of Narada within the context of things like the Gospel of John, etc., etc. So anyway, he said this. Um, God forbid the, the, the Christian turn into a Hindu. And then he said, I'm here to make Christians better Christians. He himself was a monk, right? So Swami Vivekananda, he wandered India mendicant with nothing in, except by the way, funnily, he had nothing except two books. One was the Bhagavad Gita, unsurprisingly. The other was Thomas R. Kempis's The Imitation of Christ. That's something quite interesting. Hindu nationalists will be quite upset to hear that, but it's true. It's a fact. He wandered about India with the Bhagavad Gita and the imitation of Christ. So Hindu nationalists, be careful. Your greatest hero was a deep lover of all the world's spiritual traditions, not just Hinduism. Okay. <laughs> Cue the comments of anger. <laughs> but now, so we've got this case of Swami Vivekananda coming to America. And, you know, he was really upset actually sometimes when he encountered American Christianity because the Christ himself was a monk. He was the paragon of simplicity. And yet in America, the very same people who would profess a belief in the Christ did not live according to his life and teachings, were far from simplicity. They were steeped in luxury and capitalism and materialism, so much so that Christianity is a celebration of buying people things and cluttering people's houses with a new toaster and a new air fryer and just like all this stuff that, the, that would have made the Christ feel so claustrophobic, I believe. You know, so Christianity, you could almost see the living core essence of Christianity is this kind of monastic sort of renunciation oriented, you know, to use the phrase, hesychasm. So the Orthodox Christians, they saw themselves as very close to that kind of core Christian movement of renouncing everything, moving into the desert. And I think the most famous, um, many, many, many people who did this, they went into the desert and they spent time there and they built actually communities. So they weren't alone. They would go into the desert and they would find themselves in another community of monks who had before them also come to the desert. And they actually spent a lot of time in silence, allegedly, and they would communicate through sign language. So apparently they used to like write Greek to, to one another in like the, the, the air. They would just go like this or something. I don't know. I'm, I'm probably making a fool of myself, but they used to do something like that, right? And they could understand without having to speak. So they kept silence. They kept still, stillness and they developed prayer into an art and science that could tangibly produce results. 
So this is kind of exciting to talk about religion from a scientific point of view, to talk about prayer, not in this like haphazard way of talking to God and being disappointed when you don't hear a response, but an actually kind of precise, tangible way to commune with the living essence of divinity that even now is your very own essence nature. And that tradition, that tradition of precise prayer was developed by this long line of Christian mystics living in the desert. Chief amongst them were, you know, various names, but I think Evagrius of Pontius comes to mind because he wrote that book, Chapters on Prayer. Also, he wrote this other book, which I really like, called Talking Back. It's the anti-retikos, anti-rhetoric, you know, anti-retikos, talking back. And notice it's it's here called A Monastic Handbook for Combating Demons. I think that that happens to you. If you live in the desert for a very long time, you start to become interested in like demons and spirits and stuff. So one thing about the Orthodox tradition is they're like super witchy. They're really into like demons. And this is the way in which they describe psychological forces. Demons were negative psychological forces that would take you out of your spiritual life. And so this handbook that Evagrius wrote is a practical manual for talking tough to your demons. Like for instance, when the demon of lust appears, you can use some like statement from the Bible that Evagrius compiles for you to get rid of it. So it's kind of cool. He wrote all these cool books. Their psychology was really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome, Sarah. It's good to see you. Anyway, the main book that I wanted to talk about today is like Patanjali Yoga Sutra, a very scientific manual on prayer, on the art and science of prayer. And it's the practicos along with the chapters of prayer by Evagrius of Pontius. Now, incidentally, Swami Sarvapiranda also gave that lecture. Now, I, I'm mad because I've been meaning to give this lecture for like three weeks now. You were here three weeks ago when I told you we we're going to do it but he beat us to it. So he gave that lecture at Vedanta New York um, Sunday. So I don't want to rehash it. So you can just go watch that lecture and like learn about Evagrius of Pontius's instructions for prayer there in that lecture. And you can also pick up the copy of that book yourself. So I want to do something else today, just for fear of being redundant. I don't want to rehash a lecture that you can already watch. I want to do something else. Instead of that, I want to ask three questions for the rest of this hour. First is, what are we praying to? Now that we've established there is an art and science to prayer, there is a way to pray, there is a way to actually get results, meaning to tangibly feel. I, see, I'm appealing to Americans. I'm using the consumerist capitalist language of satisfaction guaranteed. But there is a way. There is a way to like tangibly feel the presence of God through proper prayer. The Buddhist, Buddhist phrase for that is samyak. You know, samyak bodha vicharena. Samyak in Sanskrit, it's a very Buddhistic phrase. It means um, correct or proper. Samyak bodha means awareness or awakeness. Vichara analysis. So samyak bodha vicharena, the right analysis into awareness. Just like in Buddhism, we have a set of samyaks, right ways to do things, right mindfulness, right, right, right livelihood, right meditation, all of that. There's also in Christianity, right ways to pray. That's all been thought out by this vast tradition of desert fathers and desert mothers. Now, lest I leave out like the Catholics and the Cistercians and all that, this tradition was also developed by like later medieval writers like St. John of the Cross, who was a Spanish mystic who, you know, really refined the art of prayer. And Teresa of Avila, who of course in her life, also another Spanish mystic, uh, I, what really um, defined in her own life, embodied what prayer was, what it was to be prayerful. She had daily communions with Jesus. Much like Sri Ramakrishna would go into Samadhi often, she would all the time have visions of the Christ and be communing with him. And in the beginning, she was told that she was crazy and seeing demons and all of that, right? <laughs> so there was that, St. Teresa of Avila. Then there's also, of course, the Italian mystic St. Francis, who took prayer to a whole new level of humility and surrender. So the Christian tradition is full of writers who teach us about prayer, but very seldom do we actually consult their works. Those people who grew up Christian, very seldom are they invited to read Teresa of Avila's interior castle. 
You know, they don't read St. John of the Cross's compiled works. They don't read Evagrius of Pontius or Maximus the Confessor or Climax John, John the Climacost. They don't read any of this stuff, you know? They only read the Bible. And it's very difficult to read the Bible because as we said last week, you know, the Bible is an Aramaic and many of the references are hit her to a loss to understanding. And the New Testament is in Greek, Aramaic and Greek. So many of us don't speak Greek or Aramaic. So the Bible is for the most part lost on us, though its power cannot be doubted. You can still feel the kind of vibe of the Bible, but it doesn't give us like as precise of instructions as we would like. So my first suggestion here is that um, despair not, this instruction exists. And hopefully by the grace of God today, we can kind of maybe scratch the surface of this vast tradition called prayer. So let's start. Not bad, right? 20 minutes of preamble. It used to be an hour of preamble. So you're lucky. I think we're going to finish on time today. Mother willing. I'll say that and then we'll get sidetracked. (laughs) So first one. um, First thing we're going to ask, who are we praying to? Second thing I'm going to ask is, how is meditation different from prayer? Third thing I'm going to ask is, how many different kinds of prayers are there? And maybe before that, uh, after the, maybe we should ask the question, what about praying for worldly things, like praying for a car or praying for money or praying for the health of me and my family? Like, what about that? You know, I picked up a bit of a cold, it seems. This boy has a little bit of a sniffle. So it would be helpful right now if maybe some health could come my way, Sri Ramakrishna. This is your work. And yet, no, <laughs> so the question of like, what about health, right? Like, what about praying for health and money and all these like things that pertain to the body and mind? What about those things? Why do we feel so silly praying for those things? I'm going to say it's both right and wrong too. Okay, that's what we're going to talk about. The art of prayer, um, even when it comes to material and worldly things. Maybe with some reference to the Bhagavad Gita and to the stories in the Bhagavatam. Okay, so let's start. What are we praying to? Now, this is important for Troy particularly because the question then becomes, well, who do we pray to? Because prayer begins with choosing an object to which we're going to direct our prayer. Let me just here at the beginning define prayer in a few ways. Prayer is the act of directing one's entire vitality unceasingly towards the object of your love. So prayer is the act of communing with God. Prayer is the act of listening in silence and stillness for that innate divinity that pulses in each and every moment as this present moment. So these are just various ways to talk about prayer. So let's just use that first definition. Prayer is the unceasing flow of vitality towards the object of your love. Let's call this God. So God is here the object because that's who we're directing prayer to. So my guru's guru's guru actually uses the definition. He says meditation. He defines meditation as an unceasing flow of thoughts towards the object of meditation. And typically we meditate on God. So prayer slash meditation then is directing the unceasing flow of thoughts towards God. But I want to expand the definition and say it's not just about thoughts. It's also about the emotional force. I guess you could say meditation is a little bit more mental. It's more about the mind. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, lyric. No, don't worry. In about precisely five minutes, we're going to go into some very non-dual discussion. So that's why I'm comfortable saying it now because we're going to backtrack in just a moment. But at least this is how it feels. When I meditate, meditation cannot be a non-dual activity. Why not? Because in meditation, there is an inherent duality in meditating itself. I, the meditator, am meditating upon that which is the object of my meditation. So say I choose Krishna, close my eyes. I see the blue shepherd boy of Vrindavan sitting on a lotus throne in my heart. And I visualize that. I see the wildflower necklace. I see his purple blue skin, you know, and then I visualize him. But this is dualistic because there he is, the object of my experience. And here I am, the one directing my thoughts towards him. And that's called meditation, right? But prayer then would have a new component, not just the direction of my mind and my attention, but also my emotions. So prayer then is the directing, or I would say the harnessing of, the intensifying of, and the directing of your psychic and emotive force towards God. 
Can we define prayer that way? So it's not just about thinking about God. It's about heightening your emotive ability. So it's about amplifying your emotions and then giving your emotions a holy channel. Meaning it's about harnessing and directing. In so far as that's true, it, it doesn't sound like prayer is a bit like pranayama. Right? Like it's, 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 it's essence pranayama. Prana meaning energy. Yama meaning restraint or control. Prayer is drawing energy away from the things of the world and directing it instead to a transcendental thing, which is a no thing if we want to be Buddhistic about it, which is the self of myself, God. So at least in the beginning, we can define prayer as directing all of one's psychic and emotive force towards the object of our love. But then if, if that's the case, then what is that one thing, as Aishwaryaji says? Good to have you back, Aishwaryaji. Yeah, and Ashish is right. There's a point in which the meditator, the object of meditation and the link between them, the process itself, fuse together. And that's called Nirvikalpa Samadhi. You know, or maybe you could even say Savikalpa Samadhi. Even. But really, Nirvikalpa Samadhi by the kind of language of yoga in the language of yoga is when this duality collapses. But way before that, way before any Nirvikalpa Samadhi experience, I want to speak to us on this level as just like, you know, beginners in spiritual life. We're all of us beginners, you know, and we, we know, what do we know about Nirvikalpa Samadhi? How many of us have, you know, been established in Nirvikalpa Samadhi? <laughs> you know, here in America, people will relax a bit. They have a bit of relaxation. They go, I've had Samadhi. That's it. That was it. I achieved Samadhi. And then they'll text me on Instagram and be like, bro, have you ever had Samadhi, bro? And I'll be like, I don't know what samadhi is. What are you talking about? The, the most exalted experience in which the body falls off like a dry leaf after 21 days. <laughs> like who knows what that is? So way short of samadhi, you know, way short of the total abs- absorption in Brahman, like way short of that. Just in the beginning stages of meditation, there's an inherent duality. So too is there that duality in the beginning stages of prayer. Now, insofar as that is true, we have to ask the question, well, what thing should I pray to? What object should I pray to? You know, Poseidon or Kali, the question comes, who should I pray to? And now this is where the theory of the Ishta Devata becomes very important, especially insofar as Bhakti yoga is concerned. The Ishta Devata theory, this is the way it works. It's called the chosen ideal. Now in Indian spirituality, in most Indic traditions, God is seen as unnameable, undefinable. It's a lakshanam, a vevaharikam, Drisham, you know, to use the language of the Mandukya Upanishad. You can't define it. You can't use it. It's useless. You can't use it. It's not an object of transaction. And it's not nameable. It's not seeable. You can't speak about it. So that means it's not unknowable. It's just beyond the ability of the mind to know. So it's an experience that's transmental. And therefore the mind, it runs out of words. It can only speak poetically and discur- uh, what do you call it? Elliptically, you can only speak poetically and elliptically about this, which defies language, okay? It defies mind. So this object is, yes, beyond the ability to describe. And given that, given that it's beyond the mind, given that it's beyond language, it is, it is in a precisely that sense, unlimited. So this unlimited, indescribable absolute, given that it's unlimited, it thereby can be approached in unlimited ways. So if something is infinite, its expression must also be infinite. That means there are infinite ways to represent and symbolize that which is infinite. And that gives us, as devotees, the flexibility to choose any symbol whatsoever that appeals to our own proclivities, knowing that that symbol, like every other symbol, is just as good a symbol at, 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 at conveying the, that which is beyond symbols. Do you see? This is the basic, in, in, in very terse terms, the theory of the Ishta Devata. God is not Jesus, you know, but he is Jesus. Not any more or any less than he is Krishna. God is not Krishna, but he is Krishna. God is not Kali. But he, he is Kali. She is Kali. It is Kali. You are Kali. You know, that's the idea that Kali, Krishna, Poseidon, Jesus, a yantra, 
like you can see over there, that yantra, whatever, you know, all of these, they're all just various ways of pointing to the same thing. So these are all just masks of the same person. It's like I often like to say my mother has many different saris. And uh, she's got quite an extensive wardrobe of saris. But just because she's wearing a different sari today doesn't mean she's a different mother. So if she comes to you as Krishna, she comes to you as Jesus, it's still the same mother. It doesn't matter exactly how she appears, right? So that being the case, the object is actually not that important. That, that should be quite exciting to you and also quite revolutionary. Because for a lot of religions, the object is the only thing that matters. It's, it, it has to be Jesus. If it's not Jesus, you're a heretic. Doesn't matter how much love you have for the divine. Doesn't matter how much renunciation you've embodied in your own life. Doesn't matter how much service or goodness you're able to exemplify. Doesn't matter exact, exactly how spiritual you are if your object is not the same as my object. So I could be the, the, the worst of the most worldly sort of person. But as long as I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I am thereby holier than thou who art the paragon of, a paragon of renunciation and service and spirituality just because the objects are different. You see, but the Indian mind, I mean, less so these days, they're becoming increasingly, I find, nationalistic and, and, and kind of dogmatic. But back then, at least for most of our history, uh, especially during Swami Vivekananda's time, yeah, um, the object wasn't important. That's the theory of the Ishta Devata. So the Indian, therefore, was able to experience a lot of tolerance, tolerance for other people on different paths, because they knew deep down inside that their God was a symbol, just like my God is a symbol. And both of us ultimately are approaching the same infinite absolute. Okay, so it doesn't really matter what you choose. The object of your love is nowhere near as important. This is important. The object of your love is nowhere near as important as the love that you feel for it. That's why Swamiji was able to say God is love. So it's not that you love a thing. It's that you love that matters. Okay, so the thing is whatever. Poseidon or Kali, what matters is how you feel. That love that's flowing out towards what you consider is the highest. So whether it's Poseidon or whether it's Kali, I'm speaking because Troy had asked a beautiful question in the Q&A. I feel conflicted. You know, I feel drawn to Poseidon, but I also feel drawn to Kali. I mean, the energy is very similar, right? Like tridents and uh, Kat and I were discussing yesterday how Kat had gone out and done a ritual. Do you mind if I share this, Kat? Is this okay? Give me a thumbs up for... Kind of cats here. But okay, someone had described to me Cat, but I won't go into the details, but she had described to me that she'd gone out and done a ritual to a specific deity and someone else had gone out and done a ritual to a different deity and they both had very similar experiences. Oh, okay, good. Sorry, sorry. I don't mean to put you on the spot there. But okay, so Kat had gone out with a, a, what do you call it? Like a sickle or a machete or something and she had done a ritual to Kali and then someone else had gone out with like a sword or something and done a ritual to Mikael. Ma Kali, Mikael, they both felt the same energy and they were able to compare notes and be like, we practically did the same ritual to different deities. That's important that Poseidon and Kali or Krishna and Kali or Jesus and Shiva, they're just different ways of speaking about the same thing. Obviously, each of them have a certain vibe. So if you're attracted to Poseidon and Kali, you're probably more like in the Shiva camp. So you like all the goblins and ghosts and like spooky things that Shiva and Kali typically get associated with. And you're maybe less into like the monkeys of Rama and the gopis of Vrindavan. And maybe if you're into like the forest dwelling Vrindavan, gopi kind of Hanuman, monkey, Rama thing, you might be less inclined to like the Kali. So obviously there are some distinctions in vibe. But that doesn't mean it's actually different. You know, so especially once you realize God, once you feel actually God, then you'll enjoy it all. Then you'll be just as excited about gopis and Vrindavan as you would be the Buddha Ganas of Shiva and the cremation ground. But at least in the beginning, it feels, and, and Troy, I think, very nicely pointed out, feels like there can be a conflict insofar as we're trying to choose our Ishta. So the first thing I want to do in this lecture is to say, enough of that. There's no need to feel a conflict. The objects don't matter. 
Okay, the object of your worship doesn't matter. That's why I'm very reluctant to identify as Hindu. People get very angry because they want this to be like a Hindu space, right? And I'm like, I'm not more Hindu than I am Christian. I'm not more Christian than I am Islam. The idea is that I just love God and whatever you choose to call God. It's like, if I love ice cream, it doesn't matter. I can just walk into Baskin Robbins and eat all 31 flavors. Woe be to you who can only enjoy chocolate, but that's your hustle. I'm going to leave you to it. So that's the idea. It's like, if you define yourself as this or that, in other words, you're being attached to the object. And that's by definition suffering, actually. Suffering only comes when you get attached to the object, whether it's money, whether it's power, whether it's pleasure, like the objects of pleasure, or it's God. Objectifying anything is the root of all suffering. So just forget about the object for a moment. Choose any and all. Okay, and then the important thing is now the subject. So now I want to argue that, <laughs> thank you, Lyric. Uh, that should have been in rhyme. Actually, you know, a lot of these Sanskrit classics are actually written in verse. That's the sign, actually, of mastery is you should be able to speak in verse. So one day, mother willing. So <laughs> um, now we're done. We're done with this first question of like, who should I pray to? Who cares? Pray to anybody, anything, whatever. But there are at least five, just to get started, there are five ways in which we can conceive of God. Now, this is the most important thing I want to say in this lecture. Arguably, you can forget everything except for this one point. This is the main point. And it's a point that, you know, that's, this is why I was okay talking about God as an object lyric. This main point is that God cannot be found really because it's the one looking, right? The idea here, the main idea you should take away from any of these discussions is that what you are looking for is already what you are. You know, I think Rumi, Coleman Box, I know it's not the best translator of Rumi, but it's kind of pretty what he does. So he, I think, says something like, um, what you are seeking is seeking you. There's that Sufi proverb, what you are seeking is seeking you. It's more than that even. What you are seeking is what you are. What you are seeking is the one seeking. So let's be clear here. You are not God in the sense that you, the ego, are God. This is why it's very dangerous, actually, to, to teach non-duality, because I have come into contact here in America very recently and often, those people who say, I am God, but they mean the ego. Okay, it's very clear they mean the ego. No, 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 it's not the ego. This statement, I am God, must actually be the most humbling sort of thing. It's actually the opposite of ego empowerment. It's, it's an empowerment of a wholly different sort. So let me be very precise about this. Let me be very clear. Right now, what are you? That's the only question you need to ask. What are you? And if you say, I am the body, you're wrong. If you say, I am the, a person, you're wrong. This, this is the part of the lecture where we invalidate your personality. <laughs> That's the kind of central thrust of Buddhism, Vedanta, Tantra. So here's how it goes. You're not the body. And here's why you're not the body. Because in every sort of cognition, there will always be two elements, the subject and the object. The subject is the one perceiving. The object is the one being perceived. So when I, the person that I consider myself to be, go out into the world and look at, okay, at the point at which a gopi of Vrindavan says to me that this is their favorite part of the lecture, I know we're doing something right <laughs> because this is the Uddhava non-duality bit. <laughs> <laughs> so when you go out into cat just said that in the channel. So if you go out into the street and you see a car driving by and you look at the car, you say, look, a car. Now you never say I am a car. You almost always instinctively feel that is a car. I see a car. So this sort of kind of distinction between the subject and object is natural to you. This is already something that we do with everything that we consider not me. The car is not me. My spouse is not me. My books are not me. This world, you know, the world around me is not me. And I exist as an other to all of it. Or rather, it exists as an other to all of me. Why? Because it's perceived. Because I perceive this world, it is therefore on the other side of the subject-object relationship. But here's where the mistake comes. In perceiving the objects of the world, I distinguish myself from that world. But the self that I distinguish is um, nonsensically the body and mind. So I say, I, the body and mind, am distinct from all the other things that I can perceive. But wait, 
Can't I not also by that same virtue perceive the body? After all, what is the body but a stream of sensations? So I'm almost in every single moment experiencing the body as like right now, stuffiness in the nose, uh, tickling in the back of the throat, uh, sweat under the armpits. You didn't need to hear that, but it's happening. Anywhere, like I, I say I am a body. What I'm essentially saying is that I'm experiencing sensation, heat, cold, smell, taste, all of that. It's all sensation. So body is an experience. How then can I be the body? I'm no more the body than I was the car that just drove by on the street. If you can kind of, if this point flashes into your mind, like if you have this insight, you're free. Free because you're free of old age. You don't have to worry about old age. You'll be finished with all your legacy projects. You don't need to leave a mark anymore. You know, that's really just a veiled fear of death. You'd be free of sickness. You get sick and you can enjoy it. No big deal because you're not sick. It's the body that's sick. It's the body's nature to be sick. And you're not afraid of death anymore, which means that you'll be relatively fearless in your day-to-day interaction, right? Okay, so, and you'll be free of lust and craving. You'll be free of greed. Yeah, good. I, that's a beautiful cat. I, I, I do too. And that's why I never get tired of talking about it. It never seems to get old for me for some reason. It just feels so true and real. So now I'm not the body and I can just like that intuit this. I can intuit just like that, that I'm not the body. Just by virtue of analyzing the subject-object relationship. So then what am I? Am I a mind? It would seem that if I'm not the body, then I'm at the very least a mind inhabiting a body, like controlling the body, like some kind of homunculus or something. But I'm not even that because I can perceive the mind. I can perceive the ego. Yeah, (laughs) it'll come. I can perceive all the thoughts in my mind. And what is the ego really but a recurring series of thoughts? So because I can perceive a niche, therefore I cannot be a niche. I must be the perceiver of that niche. So what am I? I am not the body. I am not the mind. And therefore I am free. I always have been, always will be. Even now I'm free. So this is the non-dual truth, tattvamasi, that thou art, that God, that God, thou art, that thou art. See, that thou art. It's very, very profound to realize that. Not you, the ego, not you, the body, because that wouldn't make sense either for God to be this infinite, unlimited being beyond time, space, and causality. Uh, To be the body and mind, it doesn't feel genuine. So to genuinely say, I am God, the I in that sentence must be awareness. Yes, cat, you, that thou art, you are God. But this you is very important, is more you than you're typically used to feeling. This is very important because it's easy to talk about non-duality, very difficult to live it. This is where prayer becomes very important. Anybody can give a lecture, hear a lecture, write a book, make TikToks about non-duality. Walking the talk is where the, the difficulty comes, right? It's easy to understand. It's like Jimi Hendrix said about blues music, you know, easy to play, very difficult to feel, very difficult to be sincere about. Similarly, it's easy to talk about non-duality. There's so many, am I the waking self, the dreaming self, the deep sleep self? No, I'm none of those things. I'm the witness common to all three and yet wholly transcendent to all three. We can have these discussions and we've had had these discussions and we will continue to have these discussions, you know, but that's not the point in today's lecture. Here's what I want to stress here in this part of the lecture. That self, the Turiya, God, the witness, you know, call it what you will, Atman, in the highest flights of Vedanta is considered the same as Brahman. So God, that which is beyond time, space, and causality is the very same thing, or rather no thing to be Buddhistic as this awareness that you even now feel yourself to be. This simple presence, your simple aliveness in this very moment, your precognitive experience of pure being, which is prior to any thoughts, the ground of all thoughts, you know, that is the same as the God that you pray to. This is very important because it can be sometimes the case that you outsource God to the image or to the person or to whatever, and you forget that it's 
it's an indwelling spirit, the essence of who you are. So now this God, which you now understand is the self, after all, it's beyond time, space, and causality. God too is beyond time, space, and causality. So how can it be this different, right? One of the same thing. This helps you understand that statement in Luke that the kingdom of heaven is within you or the statement in the Quran that God is closer to you than your jugular vein. This is very important because it means that God will never be more available to you or easier of access to you than right here, right now. You don't have to go to any fancy temple. Okay, it's very important. You don't have to go to Benares. You don't have to go to Mecca. You don't have to go anywhere. These, these places can be helpful, certainly, because of the spiritual vibration there, but they are by no means necessary. Right now, right here, in this very moment, God abides in you as you, as the self of yourself, and it can be experienced as the simple, quiet, spacious aliveness inherent in each and every cognition. That is God, okay? However, it's very difficult to work with that, very difficult to embody that. So this is important. This God reflects in five ways. So think of this self, this being that you are as God. It is God. But to approach it, you must approach it through one of its reflections. None can come to the Father except because our mind is so used to think objectively, it's hard to suddenly switch to like subjective experience. You have to kind of go through the object. But what object are you going to choose? Hopefully by now you can see it's not important. You know, none can approach the father except through the son. Or rather, as Nagarjuna would say, none can come to the absolute except through the relative, right? None can come to the father except. So what is the son? What is the relative? Let's just say these are reflections of the truth. So it's like holding up five different mirrors. Now the reflections are as follows. The first reflection is called God the absolute without any form yet with attributes. This is called Saguna Brahman. So this is the God of the Hebrews. This is Ahla. This is Yahweh, uh, the Tetragrammaton. You know, this is kind of, there's no form to this God. It's formless. You can't even depict it. There are no symbols. It would be idolatry to depict this God as a symbol. Uh, This is the formless absolute called Saguna Brahman. I'll put it in the chat. Saguna Say Saguna Brahman. Okay. Then the next thing after that is called, oh, sorry. In fact, I should say this. It's Saguna Nirakara, meaning it's formless with attributes. So that's the first kind of reflection. Remember this God that we just spoke about from a non-dual point of view is called Nirguna Nirakara, meaning it's attributeless and it's also um what do you call it? Formless. It's formless and attributeless. It's the Buddhist no self. It's the void. Okay. It's Makali in her higher sense, just pure void. Then that reflects as Saguna Nirakara. So that's with, with attributes, but still formless. That was actually Sri Ramakrishna's first vision of Kali. Not as like this many armed black kind of tongue lolling kind of thing. It even says she only appears black because you're seeing her from a distance. But if you go closer and closer, you eventually realize she's colorless just like water. It appears black or blue from far away. But if you go close, you realize it's colorless. The sky looks blue, but atmosphere is actually colorless. Similarly, Kali, Krishna, they all look blue and black, but in actuality, they're Nirguna Nirakara or Saguna Nirakara. Okay. One step down from that. Uh, Not to say down, uh, not to put a hierarchy here, but just one level of objectification more. The next one is called Saguna Sakara. Now, Saguna Sakara means with form and with attributes. So this would be those, these guys, right? So these are all the same God as Nirguna Nirakara, the same God as Saguna Nirakara, yet they look a certain way. So these gods were revealed to rishis in their meditation. Now, all of these are just various ways of representing what we've thus far been talking about. So these are all various many masks. And you can call them just with form, with attributes, okay? All right. Now, the next one. 
also, Paulina, you're totally copying me. Like what? Excuse me. <laughs> kind of, kind of cramping my style here, Paulina. <laughs> okay. Then the next one is is called Virat. So this would be the the form of God as the world. So not as any of these specific forms, but just literally the world that you see. So kind of panentheism. The idea that everything you see in the world is the body of God. Vishva, Sharira, Shivaika, Rupa, Eva, Kevalam. God is that very being whose body is the whole world. So whatever you see in the world is God. That's another way God is reflected as this world. Okay. And then finally, oh, not finally, there is avatars. This is important, I think, insofar as this is the third in our series about Christ. So what is Christ? As I said earlier, Christ is a mirror. In fact, he's a perfect mirror for the self that you even now already are. Because as I asked one high schooler the other day, what would a person who realized the self look like? And he to a T described the Christ, right? He, was, he wasn't Christian by any means, but he just kind of intuitively knew that a person who was established in Brahman in the self would be selfless, would be a paragon of virtue and service, would be more spirit than man, would be really more... Uh, humble than anything, would be fearless, you know, all the things that the Christ is. And I was like, is this familiar to you? Can you name some people who are like that? You know, um, and quickly we realized the Buddha, Krishna, Christ, Ramakrishna. These are avatars. The avatars, the thing about an avatar is that they are the perfect mirrors to reflect back to you the self of yourself. The best possible mirror in existence is an avatar. Why? Because you see, we're not really used to using the mirror called Saguna Nirakara. I mean, the formless absolute. If I told you right now, please meditate on the formless absolute God, Nirguna Nirakara, what would you do? You can only be that. You can't meditate on that. You can never meditate on Brahman. You can only be Brahman. Okay, so it doesn't help you very much. Imagine you're in the midst of suffering and I say, but you're Brahman. Why should you suffer? It doesn't help you very much, you know? <laughs> so be, uh, one step down from that, I'll say, okay, now everyone, let's meditate on Saguna Nirakara. God the Father, Allah, Yahweh, okay? What will you do? How will you meditate on that? It's very difficult. In the Quran, there are 99 names of God, which helps you. Those 99 names of Allah help you understand him. Um, yeah, exactly. It's like, what, how do you do this? How do you meditate on that formless infinite with attributes? You know, you might, you, you'd be forced to conceive of him as some like good father, which is still a kind of idol, by the way. Thinking of him as a kind of Levantine father who like judiciously watches over his tribe. That's still an idol, right? God the father. But still, you have to do that. It's impossible to think of God just as formless. At best, you'd visualize like the sky or the ocean. But even that is an idol. Even that is a symbol. So it's very hard to, to work with the saguna nirakara. Then go down. Saguna sakara. A little easier, right? But these look like aliens. <laughs> In fact, History Channel probably thinks that they are. Okay, like they'll make some history channel special about ancient aliens and they'll say Shiva came down from like, I don't know, Alpha Centauri or something. So these guys look like straight up aliens. I don't understand what's going on here. What's happening? Like she's got all of this going on. I don't know. Okay, now the Hindu nationalists are really going to eat their heart out. <laughs> well, a colleague of mine actually was so... Um, See, what happened is these people on the internet, they get so angry whenever non-Indians comment on Indian scriptures. This is very sad because some of the greatest scholars in the world on Indian spirituality happen to be French and happen to be German and happen to be American. Some of the leading scholars um, who study Sanskrit and have a lot of reverence, who themselves are practitioners. It's very funny. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> who, who, who themselves are like great. By the way, if we just have radio silence for a while, no, I'm kidding. It, it, the self-importance that you need to have to make a statement like that. No, no, no. Nothing will happen. Nobody sees these anyway. They're too long for people on YouTube to really watch them. So don't worry. 
we're safe behind two hour long video. You know, we're okay. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with you people. You have nothing better to do in your life, but most people, they won't watch us and we're okay. So anyway, um, this, this idea of like, non-Indian scholars, yeah, non-Indian scholars uh, commenting on Indian scriptures, they, the people get very upset, apparently. They think it's like Western agenda or colonization or something like that. So recently, a scholar of mine, uh, a colleague of mine had to come on YouTube and say, I'm now going to make a video that it would be impossible to make if I was actually um, part of the Abrahamic religions or practice Christianity. So you have to, and, and he makes really good arguments as to why Indic religions are different from Abrahamic religions. Anyway, all of that. So people can get pretty defensive. And I think now is when um, they're going to be, oh, by the way, Emily Anderson's camel pose video just dropped, just so you know. I just got a notification from Patreon. <laughs> Emily Anderson, camel pose. And I'm like, it's dropped. <laughs> There's your plug, Emily. <laughs> scheduled yeah <laughs> no nicely done you're like okay in the middle of this lecture when he starts to get really off course i'm just going to direct people to something that they can actually do <laughs> thank you <laughs> save no anyway so he had to do he had to kind of yeah yo he just called kali an alien all right i'm on here so like these people they, they feel so he made a video to show like okay look look i'm actually genuine i'm i'm really actually a hindu i'm not a christian like that so people get kind of Sometimes Indians. So now they're going to, they have all the ammunition they need, right? They're going to be like, look, I told you he was an Extian. He's an Extian. That for some reason, Hindu nationalists thinks that call, they call someone Extian is like canceled. He's canceled because he's an Extian. Sorry, I am a Christian. I love the Christ. What are you talking about? I also, I also love him. Anyway, so how do you work with these people? You know, you can meditate on them, but it's very difficult because really all you have is like a Dhyana Mantra. Yeah, Kali and Alien. Oh my God. I'll get all of those like Laguna Beach, Kali Mandir people who are like, I'm working with Kali. You know, the kinds of people who are like, like just she's a lesser deity in some pantheon that I can use to smite my ex like that. Anyway, so <laughs> it's very difficult to meditate on God like this. You can, you know, they're very, they'll draw your attention. They're, and these, by the way, these forms, have been revealed to rishis in their meditation. So what they'll do is meditate. And when they see the form emerging from the pranava or something, Om, they make a mantra. So for instance, the Kali Dhyana mantra, Om Meganghim Vigatam Param, Shava Shiva Rudham Triyatam Param. This, this Dhyana mantra just describes Ma Kali. Oh, Meganghim, like Megha, like storm clouds. Oh, Meganghim Vigatam Param. She's clothed in infinite space, like storm clouds. So she's black. Black because black contains all colors, right? Or it absorbs all colors, rather. Then... Uh, she's three-eyed, meaning the eye of wisdom. And Lord Shiva, awareness, lies at her feet. So all of this is very symbolic. Still quite difficult, right? It's a difficult mirror to look at. That's all I'm going to say. It's like complicated, but very helpful. And certainly a lot better than the formless God. It's very difficult to approach the formless God with attributes. It's nigh impossible to approach the formless, attributeless God, but it becomes kind of doable to approach God like this. So no Hindu actually thinks this is God, like as is, but they do. That's the irony of it. It's like a paradox. This is God, but also God is something more. So this is one option. This is called Saguna Sakara. Now the avatars, the thing about avatars, the reason why they're such a great mirror is because unlike, you know, these very exotic looking beings, they're just fellas. They have two arms, two legs, they sleep, they eat, they walk about the world. They're humans. So it's easiest for us who humans to find our God in humans. I think, who is it? If horses had gods, was it Zeno? Some, some Greek philosopher said, if horses had gods, they would be horses. They would be horse gods. There's a lot of wisdom to that. You look into a mirror that is most suited to your taste. In other words, choose a mirror whose size fits your frame. Okay. You'll be confused by a mirror that's too big or too small. So the best mirror to look for God in is the avatars. 
That's kind of the theory of reflection. That's why avatars are the best way to get to God because they're one of the best mirrors. But there's another one too. And the, the last one is gurus. Your guru ideally is a person who's fully embodied truth. They might not be like an avatar in the sense of a world teacher, but they at least have emptied themselves out enough. Uh, not quite. Ganesh is Saguna Sakara. Avatars are Rama, Krishna, Buddha, Jesus, Ramakrishna, avatars. But a lot of gurus will claim to be avatars. Of course, I mean, this is an avatar, that's an avatar. You can't throw a rock these days without hitting an avatar in, in India. But the point here, the point here is just this, that they are great mirrors for the absolute. You see God in them. So any of these can be the, the object of your prayer. Okay? So that's so much for what do we pray to. So how is prayer different from meditation? I'm going to say it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, ah, remember how when Swami Medanandaji was here, we had this discussion, are all enlightened beings avatars? Not quite. The avatar theory is kind of unique. Um, maybe it appears in Vaishnavism and Christianity. It's also sort of there in Shaivism, but it's about directionality. You see, an avatar comes down from the absolute and takes human form. A human goes up from the relative and maybe somewhere in between, they become like a bodhisattva or something. They're different, you see. An avatar has like a slightly higher manifestation of God, having never had a human birth. The avatar comes down like as a human, right from God. Whereas we, from rock, go to plant, go to animal, go to higher animals, mammalian animals, and then become humans and then become assholes in nihilist assholes in college and then have to go through all of that. I'm sort of talking about my background. This is biographical if you haven't picked that up already. But I sort of like, you know, you have to go, is it this different? Obviously, we'll never be avatars in that sense. But we can be Ishvara Kotis, like Shiva Nandaji. No, no, you, the avatars are born. Jesus is born. Make no mistake. But by immaculate conception, they'll say, right? So was Ramakrishna was also born by immaculate conception, by the way. And Krishna too. That's something about avatars, you'll notice they're all been kind of immaculately conceived. You know, that same lore is not there with the Buddha, but the same kind of lore is there with his birth. Like he was born and he apparently like walked and flowers bloomed at his feet. So he was marked from birth, right? That, that these, these, these are what makes an avatar an avatar, but I won't really get into it. Not that important, I think, for this discussion. Let's save it for the q and I want to wrap up now by offering like few different ways to pray. Now that we have this object of prayer, we have now um, a clear understanding of the object being not as important as the feeling. So insofar as that's true, then we have to ask the question, prayer is about generating feeling. So it's important that I choose an object that I feel connected to because I'm not going to be able to generate feeling for an object that doesn't stir my soul. You know, so Jesus, Rama, Buddha, Krishna, uh, Ramakrishna, these beings, by reading about them, it really stirs your soul. So the first way to pray, I would argue, is this. Learn everything and anything about the object of your love. Right? Don't you do this anyway when you're crushing on someone? You, like, go on their Facebook page and, like, just, like, scroll, you know? Back when I still had crushes, Facebook was a thing. So I was, like, scrolling on Facebook and you like, look at their photos. You want to learn everything. Where do they work? What do they do? You, you want to stalk. Sorry, (laughs) that felt felt like a confession. No, it's like, you just want to learn about them as much as you can, right? When you talk to them at the cafe, you're asking them personal questions about who they are. You just want to learn about them. So the prerequisite to prayer, like prior to prayer, arguably is you ought to, yeah, look up their horoscopes. You know, Sri Ramakrishna's horoscope is published in the Sri Sri Lila Prasanga of Swami Saradananda. You want to, you know, ask them about, their chart and you want to, you know, you want to know anything about them. So insofar as prayer is about heightening your emotional capacity, (laughs) nice. Insofar as you want to heighten your emotional capacity, it's good to like read about them. So Bhagavatam, for instance, has all these stories about Krishna, 
all these stories about devotees of Krishna and of Vishnu and all that. So the Bhagavatam has all these great stories for bhaktas. Bhaktas can really strengthen themselves by reading these stories, reading the Bible and also reading about saints like Teresa or St. John or uh, St. Francis or all that. One of my favorite movies is Brother, Son, Sister, Moon. Watching a movie like that, you can feel a kind of heightening of your own devotion. So watching stuff relating to the deity, reading about the deity. There's that beautiful 1950s film, Bhagavan Sri Ramakrishna in Bangla. It's a black and white film. And that moves you. The gospel of Sri Ramakrishna is perhaps one of the greatest bhakti books in the world. It's full of prayer. All throughout the book, you'll see Sri Ramakrishna play, praying. You'll see other people praying. He'll sing songs. Other people will sing songs, really beautiful, prayerful songs. Like you just get so much prayerfulness from something like the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna and from the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount and all of that. So reading about your Ishta or reading about all Ishtas, studying about them, watching about them, hearing about them. This I think is the prerequisite to prayer. You have to kind of feel the living presence of that object of your love by constantly engaging with that object, by constantly bringing in media or uh, constantly consuming stuff about that deity. Okay. That's the first thing. Feel the feel feeling the deity is a matter about of learning the deity. To know is to love, arguably. If you if you if you if you love something, you want to know everything there is about it. As Swami Chetan Anandaji said. And he went on to write 50-something books about Sri Ramakrishna. So he's really walking the talk there. If you love something, you want to know everything about it. That's good. Start there. Start by learning everything about it. Get the Lila Prasanga. Swami Chetan Anandaji did a great translation of the Shri Shri Lila Prasanga of Swami Saradananda. Get Christopher Isherwood's book. Ramakrishna and his disciples. Get Swami Nikolananda's book about Swami Vivekananda. Like that, read about saints, read about um, avatars, read about gods, all of that. Read the stories and the Puranas, everything. This will heighten your bhakti. This is the first thing. Second, the first type of prayer, um, this was like a preamble, like kind of learn about the deity, but now prayer proper. Let's come up with maybe six different ways to pray. The first type is deceptively simple. And as a result, it's usually uh, underlooked. And that is japa. People think japa is distinct from prayer, but no, japa exists within the bhakti tradition. And japa is nothing but the constant, unceasing mental recitation of the name of God. It's really as simple as that. You know, just saying God's name over and over and over. Call me by your name. Just say it over and over and over and over unceasingly. Now, japa is a science in and of itself. I would point you to Swami Shivananda's book, Japa Yoga. You'll see just quite how evolved the science is. But very briefly, japa is in a few forms. One, it takes the form of spoken recitation. This is called the Vaikari Vak or the Vach Japa. You speak it out. So you might say, Makali, 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 or Jai Makali, Jai Makali, Jai Makali, Jai Makali. You might say it out loud. This is by far the worst form of Japa. Why? Because it's possible to say something out loud and be somewhere else in your mind. So this is the most superficial and mechanical form of Japa. You can just do it all day long, but it's like throwing seeds on the cement. None of them will sprout. But it's still worth doing. Why? Because at, at some point, the cement might crack. In other words, no matter how distracted or um, you know, not there you are with your japa, there's at least a chance that one recitation will be present with, with presence. So even if it's just this, it's still good. But better than this is whispered, upamshu. Upamshu means whispered japa. It's like a little more private. It's like you whisper to the ones you love, right? You whisper. So whispering. And then higher than that, higher than whispering is mental recitation. Now, mental recitation is when you do it with as much presence as possible. So here you become very silent and very still. 
So unlike spoken japa, which you might be able to do while doing the dishes, while walking around in the world, unlike whisper japa, which still gives you some room to kind of wander away, mental recitations require that you become very still, very quiet. And you not only mentally recite the name, but you also feel for the living presence of that name within you. In fact, let's define prayer as the act of actively trying to feel the living presence of God within you. And that mantra is not different from God. Those of you who came to the puja class, you know there's no difference between the, the sound and that which it signifies. So that mantra is God. So by repeating the name, Kali, 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 or whatever, Jesus, Jesus, like whatever, just by repeating the name, just the name, you can actually feel the vibe or the vibration of that name. Okay? It's very important. You have to feel it. And there are many hacks for this. Like one is to kind of bring one finger to the crown of your head and the other finger to the space between perineum and genitals. Just stack the two fingers over one another. And then when you remove them, you might be able to feel a line of energy moving between those two points. This is a shushumna nadi. And that mantra actually vibrates up and down, left and right in that shushumna nadi itself. So when you do the japa, you can actually feel for the presence of the mantra there as an energetic thought form. Okay, so that's one thing. Then even higher than this type of japa, even higher than this is listening. This is called ajapa japa, where you don't even mentally recite it. You just close your eyes, become very quiet and feel for the presence of the japa within you. So you're not, you might not even hear it in the literal sense. You just like feel it. Okay, ajapa japa. You just sense the presence of that mantra. So these are four ways that you can do japa. Spoken, whispered, mentally, and the highest of them all, just feeling for it feeling the living presence of God. That's prayer. Though it doesn't really meet our kind of conception or preconceptions about prayer. We think prayer must be like talking to God or like supplicating or something like that. But no, japa itself is prayer. Just repeating the name of God. Now, ideally, in the Indic traditions, we say you must receive that name from one who has actualized it. So you should take diksha. You should go and receive that name from a guru. The guru does a ceremony and then gives you the name of God. That's not just there in Hinduism. It's also there in Sufism. I went to Raman one time with a Sufi. I love that line. I feel like it's particularly LA. So me and the Sufi were talking about Japa. And in his tradition, it's called Zikir. And he too received his Zikir, which is a part of the Quran, from his teacher. So it was an adiksha as well. It was an initiation. And Zikir is merely repeating a, a part of the Quran, like a prayer. Now in the Christian tradition, some of you were there for those classes we did with Anjali. Remember some time ago, we had those classes where we did the rosary together and Anjali would do the rosary however many times and would have a little prayer. So doing the rosary itself is prayer. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Just repeating that over and over and over. Now, in the Orthodox Christian tradition, it's called the Lord's Prayer or Jesus Christ's Prayer. So I'm going to put a book in the chat. It's one of the most important books, I think, arguably, for this thing that I'm talking about now, Japa. It's called Way of a Pilgrim by an anonymous Russian author. So we don't know who wrote it, but it follows the story of this Russian mystic, you know, Orthodox mystic, Eastern Orthodox, who hears about this thing called unceasing prayer. He's in church one day and he hears about unceasing prayer. And it, the whole book is about him trying to learn to do it. He approaches a guru. The guru initiates him into the Jesus prayer. And then he gets all this instruction, like to do it, feeling for it, like listening to his heartbeat and timing the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy upon me onto the heartbeat like that. So just repeating the name of God, Elahi, 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 you know, Jesus, that's, that, that's itself prayer. Okay. So this should go on all through the day, unceasingly. You might even invest in a mala. You know, you can have a rosary. All traditions have rosaries. Islamic people use rosaries. Christians use rosaries. 
Indians, Buddhist, you know, they all sorts of rosaries. You can get all sorts of materials. Yes, don't don't stop the japa unceasingly. Of course, it's a practice, right? In the beginning, <laughs> Jesus, no, Jesu is like, wait, 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 wait. Can, can I hear that again? The whole day? Yes. And the whole night. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> it takes a bit. It takes a bit. And maybe in the Q&A, we can ask the question like, why? Why does it take a bit? Okay. Let me just say this though. In the beginning, it's going to be tough going. The mind will resist the mantra. But as you keep doing it, you know what will happen, especially if you have a, a, an awake mantra, meaning a mantra with mantra virya, mantra that was given to you through diksha. You know what happens is the mantra becomes like flowing nectar. You start to feel this sort of vibe with the mantra that's like so ecstatic. Like no orgasm can ever come close to the like, a, a, like pleasure of a mantra. And then you'll never want to stop doing it. You'll get irritated actually if anything takes you away from the mantra. None <laughs> for now. Lord Shiva, let him give you the diksha. So anyway, um, this is very important. This mantra, you maybe, by the way, you don't even need diksha. Prior to diksha, you can work with any mantra that you like. You know, pick one up. Om from the Mandukya. Om Namah Shivaya, Soham, any of these, just pick any mantra and just keep going. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me. Keep the mantra going. That's one way to pray. And I think that's the first way I'd like to just tag. The first way to pray is unceasing uh, worship of God. So I want to end now. I, I recognize that um, maybe this is a two-part video, right? We, I think, thus far have covered what to pray to. Now, maybe there's, there's so much more to say about prayers. I'm just going to list them and go into them deeply, hopefully, maybe next week or the week after, depending. So the first one is Japa. Okay, we'll talk about Japa in depth next week. Now, the next thing, hopefully, mother willing, we'll talk about Japa. The next thing is you know, Japa. The next thing is singing the praises and glories of God. So the beautiful thing about prayer is that there are already a lot of pre-written prayers and they're written or spoken by masters. So they have a certain power. It's like when you want to go surfing, you could generate your own waves by constructing a wave machine, or you could just ride the waves that are there. Similarly, you could come up with your own prayers, which is powerful and wonderful, but you could also just, you know, ride the waves that are there, meaning do the prayers that the great masters have given us. So for instance, the Lord's prayer um, that masters have given us and also uh, Jesus, at the end of the Sermon of the Mount, he gives this prayer. He almost, it's like a diksha. He initiates everyone that was there at the sermon. He initiates them into this mantra. Oh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Mantra, right? Hallowed japa. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. No, here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. It covers a little bit about praying for worldly things and deliver us from temptation. Now we know when Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, you know what he's actually talking about, right? He's talking about the bread of life. He's not actually talking, I don't think he's actually talking about like bread. He's saying, give us some strength, nourish us. We have to feel you. You know, it's not enough that we're calling out to you. You must answer us in the feeling of presence. So give us this day our daily bread, meaning give us spiritual sustenance. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses. And by the way, once you say this, you should feel cleansed. You should feel like you've done no wrong. Forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven those who have trespassed against us. So you drop everything. You have no qualms or problems with anybody anymore and nor even with yourself. Okay. So after you say that, you should feel this. You should be like, I've forgiven everybody and therefore I'm forgiven. I don't have to be hard on myself. Today's a new day. This is the first moment of the rest of my life. Forgive us, Father. For we know not what, they, what we do. Then you go on and you say, 
Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from darkness. For thine is thy kingdom, thy power, and thy glory. Ato malkut vagavura vagadula. Leolam. Amen. Forever and ever. Amen. So thou who art the eternal, there is great sanctity in thy name. Oh Lord, give me now some sense, some spiritual nourishment that you are real. Fill my heart full of love for thee. You know? And lead me not into that which would distract me from thee. Protect me against all of my patterns and proclivities. And most importantly, forgive me. Forgive me as I have forgiven everyone. Let this moment be the first moment of the rest of my life. And I consecrate it to you, body, mind, and soul. I consecrate my life to you. Let thy will alone be done. May I be a worthy instrument in thy hands. And may I feel the peace and blessedness therefrom. See, that's the prayer. The prayer of Seven of the Mouth. So you can do that. You can just say that prayer over and over. And Teresa did. Teresa would say that prayer. But also, you know, maybe even better than that is singing it. Singing the prayer. Like a lot of prayers are actually sung. Now the Psalms are a great example. So when Christ was on the cross, remember last week we talked about um, Christ and how he was singing while he was being crucified. Elahi, Elahi, Lama Sabakhtani. You can sing all these songs, okay, from, from prayers. Like Chandi is a great example. So this is a prayer book. You sing those songs. You, you don't like say them. You sing them. Ya Devi Sarvabhuteshu. Uh, so basically you're kind of emphasizing this emotional tone of prayer by singing and dancing and clapping your hands that's why a lot of these prayers like the psalms like the chandi like the shiva mahimna stotra you know all of these are rendered into song into music and that's why a big part of christian christian sadhana especially in like black churches is gospel music you know is, is singing is chanting it's got to be real though you know that like fake kirtan that you hear sometimes like that festival kirtan where it's kind of like sugary and there's no real like, oh my God, sorry. I just I smacked the ask to unmute button. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. When, what's his name? Um, Robert Bly and all that. They translate all these Mira and Kabir poems. Anyway, all these are songs. They're songs to be sung. There's a benefit to this because singing and dancing gives you the taste of God. And not only that, it amplifies your emotional power, which if not directed can harm you. But if properly directed, can be very powerful at directing your whole being towards God and feeling the living presence of God. So the second one, first one is Japa. The second one is singing the praises and glories of God. And you can use any ready-made songs that are available like the Chandi or the Psalms, or you could make your own, like Kirtan can be turned into, you know, your daily practice could just be Kirtan. That itself is Japa mixed with singing. Then Third thing, anytime you experience anything beautiful, so like a beautiful taste, even a beautiful orgasm, a beautiful sunset, you're at a rave and the DJ is like killing it, like whatever, whatever experience of beauty you have in your life, you're at that moment, like melted wax, stamp the name of God into your heart in that moment. In other words, remember God. It's called smarana. Just remember God in that moment of beauty, in that moment of rapture, remember God. You're just like, say God's name. Or remember that God alone is the power here and that this beauty is nothing but a reflection of God or like an echo of God's beauty. So this beauty is a glimpse of God's beauty. It's not God. It itself is wetting the appetite for God. Yeah, right? Like just remember God. It makes everything better because it takes you to the heart of what's beautiful about what's beautiful. Some of you were here in the beginning of class. You remember that prayer. Sarva Mangala Mangalye. She is the beauty in all things beautiful. So when you do experience beauty in your life, it's like the heart is ready in that moment to be stamped with the name of God. It's like melted wax, as they say in Vaishnava literature. So just say the name of God in a moment of beauty. That itself is a powerful prayer. You'll see. It'll give you a taste for spiritual life. Then 
Fourth thing, in devastation. This is one of the best ways to come to God. It can be unsustainable if the only time you come to God is when you're devastated. But um, when you realize that you have no control, you know, when your life is totally unsplaying, what? Just coming apart before your very eyes, you know? That's the moment when you realize that God is the power here, not me. I've been worshiping myself as God. I think that I'm in control, but then I realize I can't even digest my own food for crying out loud. At any time, my stomach can stop assimilating. At any time, my lungs could stop breathing. I am not the power here. God is. And when you have a moment of devastation, that becomes clearer to you. So remember God in times of devastation. That's really powerful. Now, the fifth thing is speaking to God. Now, of course, you can talk to God about anything and everything. You can just make it a practice to incessantly talk to God. You know, he can't quite run away, unfortunately. Your friends can, but God isn't going anywhere. He is, after all, all pervasive. So where can he go that he isn't? So you can just talk to God incessantly in a kind of trivial way. But actually, as you look at practicals and chapters on prayer, you'll see what it actually means to talk to God is really more listening than talking. So you might say things to God, right? You might say things, but more important than saying things, arguably, is to close your eyes become very quiet and listen. Silence itself is God's answer to you. Your very longing for God itself is proof of God's existence. So when you talk to God, you don't have to get literally words back. You might, certain you know, instincts or I- intuitions might arise from the depths of silence. You might feel moved to do this or that. Like in that sense, you're acting as an instrument of God, but it doesn't have to happen. You can just sit in silence and feel into the silence itself. And that would be also prayer. Thereby, I would therefore say, uh, rather, that meditation and prayer are very similar. It's just becoming still, becoming silent, and listening for the living presence of God within you. So I want to close with a prayer. And it's a prayer from Sri Ramakrishna. It's a very, very powerful prayer because it asks the question, like, what should I pray for? You know, can I pray for worldly things? Absolutely, I can. And, you know, at risk of just talking forever, I'm not going to get into stories of Dhruva or Swami Vekaranda. And I wanted to, but next week, next week. What to do? So next week we'll talk about like praying for worldly things. Can I pray for maybe, you know? Can I pray for? Yeah, there's more, but I think I just want to stop here for now. So we can start with japa. We can start with um, japa is one way to pray. Singing the praises and glories of God is another way to pray. Um, Remembering God in moments of beauty is a third one. It's like feeling the gratitude for that moment. The fourth one is remembering God in a moment of devastation. Um, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Then fifth one, fifth one is just sitting silently and communing with God. So it's it's not frivolous. It's not a matter of frivolous talk. You're not just like saying stuff to an image, like just because, okay, I got kind of upset one day when someone suggested that's all it was, just frivolously saying stuff. No, it's not that. You can, that's wonderful. That's good too. But for it to be real, it's more than just talking at something. You're actually communing. You're closing your eyes. If your eyes are open, good, you're looking, but you're really trying to enter into that experience and feel the living presence of God. That's the fifth thing, okay? And there are many more. I think there are, there are many more that we could talk about. Tantric ritual worship, like actual ritualized puja, like that. We could talk about that. We could talk about a lot of different things. But I think for now, I just want to say that these are five kind of preliminary suggestions for prayer. And what should we pray for? Next week, we'll talk about praying for worldly stuff. But let me just do this prayer from Sri Ramakrishna, and you will see in it exemplified the highest prayer. And I hope that many of you can recall the Jesus Renunciation Lecture, Christ's message on renunciation, and see that this prayer echoes the sentiment from that lecture, which is, nothing in the world will ever truly satisfy you. Maybe it can for a little while, but it won't truly satisfy you. Nothing short of God will fill your thirst. Nothing short of self-realization, of non-dual experience, nothing short of that will quench 
that fire that burns every day restlessly for fulfillment. Only God can do it. Knowing this, hear this prayer. Oh mother, I throw myself upon thy mercy. Everything happens by your will. I take refuge at thy hallowed feet. I do not want bodily comforts, given that they only have a two days existence. Given that man does not live by bread alone, I do not want mere bodily comforts. I do not crave name and fame. These things are fleeting and only increase my anxiety. And I do not even seek the eight occult powers. They are great hindrances to the realization of God. O oh, Mother, I do not want any of these toys, trinkets, and baubles. I ask only that you be gracious and grant unto me pure love, a love untainted by selfishness, a love unsmitten by desire, a love craved for the devotee, for the sake of love alone. And do me this favor, Mother. May I never be deluded by thy world-bewitching Maya. May I never become attached to lust and greed, conjured up by thy inscrutable Maya. O oh, Mother, there is nobody in this whole world that I may call my own but thee. Mother, I do not know how to worship. I am without austerity. I possess neither knowledge nor devotion. Everything happens by your grace. So please grant unto me whatsoever is necessary to reach you and realize you in this very life so I may feel your all-merciful and all-pervading presence all of the time. O oh, Mother, I pray for discernment. I pray for dispassion. I pray for devotion. I pray for knowledge. O oh, Mother, be gracious and grant me love for thy lotus feet. Om Shanti 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 Harihi Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Arpanamastu